In today's episode of the St. Philip Institute podcast, we're going to learn about prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, these things that everybody seems to know we do during Lent. But I want to show you why it is that we do this, the deep biblical roots going all the way back to the Garden of Eden, how Jesus prescribes prayer, fasting, and almsgiving in the Sermon on the Mount, and how this ultimately can help us to have a more fulfilling and deeper Lenten experience that's all very scriptural. So please enjoy this episode. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Eternal Father, you called St. Philip the Evangelist to open his mouth and begin with Scripture, tell the good news of Jesus Christ. By virtue of our baptism, we too are called to work for the salvation of souls. Instill in our hearts the zeal of St. Philip that we may convert hearts and minds to your Son, Jesus Christ, our Savior, who lives and reigns forever and ever. Amen. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hi, welcome to the St. Philip Institute podcast. My name is Luke Arredondo. I am the Director of Faith Formation for the St. Philip Institute here in Tyler, Texas. And I want to welcome you to our podcast where we talk about the Catholic faith, um, try and give you a better understanding and grounding of of what it is that we believe and why. Um, In today's episode, uh, we are going to be talking, or I'm going to be talking, about uh, Lent and the Lenten practices that... uh, often Catholics try and do more of during this season, specifically uh, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Um, I was teaching a, uh, a high school youth formation night uh, last week and asked some of the students, you know, what are some things that we can do during Lent to grow in our faith and to kind of get more out of this season that we're uh, right on the doorstep of here. And uh, a lot of people said prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. And when I asked them why, they weren't really very sure. They couldn't have. They didn't have any good reasons to say why it was, you know, other than oh, well, prayer sounds like a good idea. But you know, why we do fasting and almsgiving, even though obviously those seem penitential. Like why those three things? So that's what I want to actually talk about uh, with you all today. Is uh, why the church prescribes for us during uh, the season of Lent, in particular, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving. Uh, one one important thing, I guess, to to start out with is. It's not that we only pray, you know, give alms and fast during Lent. Uh, certainly we should do that at other times of the year also, but Lent is a real special time for us to kind of pour ourselves into this. And I want to explore with you um, sort of a biblical look at why it's these three behaviors that are prescribed to us. Uh, and it's it's a, a really rich account looking at uh, the creation, well, the fall of Adam and Eve, Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount, um, and some other uh, Old Testament passages that kind of, I think, can clarify this for us um, and give us maybe a little bit better appreciation of why these things are recommended for us during Lent. So, uh, I want to start with uh, looking at the fall uh, from the book of Genesis, chapter 3. Um there's, I'm not going to read the entire account here, but there's there's one one important verse uh, that that kind of highlights why it is we do prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, um, why those are such good practices. Um, so this is Genesis chapter three. Uh, I'll start in verse uh, two. 
So the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Verse 6. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were open, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons, right? And, and, and you know the rest of the story, right? Doesn't go doesn't go well from there. But I want to point out in verse 6, Genesis 3, verse 6, uh, something that it's easy for us to overlook. Eve's description, or the description of why Eve chose ultimately to eat the fruit, uh, involves three separate reasons, okay? So let me read verse 6 again and see if you can catch them. If you're playing the at-home game, see if you can find the three reasons here. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was desired, was to be desired to make one wise. So the fruit is good for food. That's the first thing. It was pleasing to the eyes. That's number two. And it was desirable to make one wise or to make one like God. Okay. These are all together at the center of the fall, right? There are sort of three different motivations that both Adam and Eve ultimately have that lead them to give in to the tempting of the serpent uh, in that original sin in Genesis chapter 3. It's good for food, it's pleasing to the eyes, and it's desirable to make one wise, right? They want to they want to be like God. And really, that's the most significant one, the most dangerous to put ourselves in the place of God, to be like him, to decide ultimately what is good and evil. And that's that's really the most the, the primary one. But there's also two other motivations that it's good for food and it's pleasing to the eyes. These uh three reasons correspond to what uh, the tradition calls the triple concupiscence or the triple lust. Um, in the first letter of John, chapter 2, uh, John describes these as the sin of the flesh, the sin of the eyes or the sin of possessions, and the sin of pride or or the pride of life, right? So they map on to what sort of the customary human experience, right? We have sins of the flesh, sins involving our body, our natural desires, right, that sometimes we don't maintain control over. We let them control us. So when Eve sees that the fruit was good for food, when Adam sees that the fruit is good for food, they desire it, right? And is that wrong for them to desire food? No, that's a good desire. It's a healthy desire to want food. But recall, God had given them already the command not to eat of this particular tree. Remember, they're in a garden surrounded with other kinds of trees. It's just one of them that they can't eat from. Um, so their desire of the flesh, of their body, uh, which is a good desire, right, gets disordered and gets out of control. They they lose control over it. Then we see that the fruit was pleasing to the eyes. 
it's something that they want to behold, something that they want to possess. Even though, again, they've already got the rest of the garden in their possession in a certain sense. There's this limit that God has placed. They can't have this tree. They can't even touch it, but they want it. Like, they want to possess it. And then the ultimate one, right, that's the sin of the of possessions or sin of the eyes. But then the, the, the highest one is this desire to become like God, right? And that's what Bishop Barron says is really the fundamental thing of the, of the original sin of Adam and Eve is that they wanted to put themselves in the place of the Creator to decide for themselves what is good and what is evil. And that they believe the lie of the serpent, that if they eat this fruit, it will open their eyes and they will be able to know, like God, what is good and what is evil. Now, those three desires of Adam and Eve, those three motivations, correspond to Jesus' experience of temptation in the desert. Right, so we are just on the doorstep of Lent here, right? Ash Wednesday is right around the corner, or it's today. Uh, if you're watching the video of this, the day that it releases, it's it's at today's Ash Wednesday. This weekend, for the first Sunday of Lent, there's always a reading from the Gospels of one of the accounts of Jesus' temptations. There are multiple accounts, and the details vary slightly. But what happens is Jesus is baptized, and then he is led by the Spirit into the desert, where he fasts for 40 days, and he is tempted. He's tempted by Satan in the desert. Uh, You can see this in Matthew chapter 3, Luke chapter 1, I'm sorry, Matthew chapter 3, Mark chapter 1, which is a very, very condensed account in Mark, and then Luke chapter 4. So again, if you're you're playing the at-home game, you know, grab your Bibles out, hit pause, you can go read those accounts. But Jesus, in his experience of the temptations with Satan, right, it's Satan who is tempting him, he's in the desert, in his human experience, right, he experiences the same sorts of temptations, the same sorts of motivations that Adam and Eve experience, and yet he conquers them, right? So, Adam and Eve, right, a little different situation, they're not fasting for 40 days, but they're in a garden surrounded by food, and then there's one tree that they're not supposed to eat from, uh, and that's the limit that they cannot transgress. In Jesus' temptations, uh, the devil tells him, you know, you're God. Uh, you could take one of these stones and turn them into turn it into bread. But Jesus has chosen to fast, right? He he wants to fast. And the devil is tempting him to to use his power and, you know, take this stone and turn it into bread. And Jesus responds, Man does not live on bread alone. Jesus answers the the uh, temptations of of the serpent, of, of of the devil, right, with scripture each time. Something really cool to be aware of. He all the words, all the words of the answers are he's quoting the Old Testament to Satan, which is really cool. Um, so when Jesus experiences the temptation for food. Uh, which is a, it's a much greater temptation in the first place than what Adam and Eve experienced. They weren't fasting for forty days, right? They just they just were supposed to fast from the tree from from the fruit of one tree. Jesus is fasting from everything for forty days, and he's tempted to use his his divine power to turn bread into a stone or turn a stone into bread, and he refuses. He says because he says man does not live on bread alone, but on every word right that comes from the mouth of God. Now, 
The second temptation, or, or one of the other temptations Jesus experienced, is when Satan takes him up in a high place and he shows him all of the kingdoms of the earth. And Satan says something very mysterious, that I will allow you, I will let you have these if you will serve me. Like, you can rule over all of this if you will, if you will worship me. And Jesus' response is, you shall serve the Lord alone. Okay, now, this temptation to see the kingdoms of the earth and to possess them, to have them, is similar to the motivation of Adam and Eve who see the fruit of the tree and they say it's pleasing to the eyes, we want to have it, even though, right, for, for Adam and Eve, they've already been told you can't have this. Jesus, his temptation is even greater because he actually can and has a right to possess all the kingdoms of the earth because he is the Lord, but he has to get there by way of the cross. And what Satan is trying to do is say, just serve me and I'll give them to you. You can have the possession of these kingdoms without the suffering, right? But the Lord because he is the Lord, does not fall for that. And he says, you shall serve the Lord alone. The other temptation is when Satan takes Jesus and tells him, you should throw yourself off of the mountain, right? And and God will send his angels to protect you. Uh, they will not let you uh, die because you are the son of God. Jesus, Satan knows who Jesus is, right? And Jesus' response is, you shall not tempt the Lord your God, right? So think of, the, uh, think of it this way. This is, this is tempting Jesus with pride. But it's, but it's a little different, though, because really Jesus is so important that, you know, he could expect to be saved by the angels or he could save himself, um, I always think of this, you know, Satan trying to tempt Jesus by, you know, throw yourself off the temple and, uh, you know, you'll be saved miraculously. And then everybody will know who you are. They'll know you are God. And what we see in the New Testament, right, in the Gospels is Jesus works so many miracles and so many healings. He raises people from the dead. And yet still not everybody is going to believe. So the, so Satan is trying to kind of get him to reveal his himself as if that's going to finally solve the problem that Jesus has come to, to solve, right? To reveal who he is, to convince people of who he is. But Jesus knows, you shall not tempt the Lord your God. Um, now, these temptations align, as I said, as I've tried to show you here, with Adam and Eve's experience in the garden, right? There is a temptation of the flesh to eat. Jesus refuses it. He does not create food for himself. There is a temptation to possess the kingdoms without suffering, right? Just serve me, and you can possess all of these kingdoms. Jesus refuses it. He does not want to possess something in that way, right? He will He will be the Lord of, of, of everything, but it's going to be through the cross, not through serving Satan. And then Jesus is tempted to you know, display his divinity. And I'm a, I'm a big uh, Superman fan uh, because I was just born at the best time, okay? I was born in 1984, and Superman was just everywhere. Uh, and I got to watch the Superman movies so many times as a kid. One of the things that always I couldn't understand about Superman that, that impressed me 
is that he would be willing to just walk around like Clark Kent and not just show off all the time. Um, not tell Lois, for instance, that he's the one who saved her in the helicopter when it fell off the building. You know, you've got me, who's got you? Um, that, just just imagining being a superhero who has to maintain a secret identity always has impressed me. I can't imagine being Jesus, who's here. here, here is Satan tempting him. You know, on the one hand, throw yourself off the temple and that, you know, you will be saved and everybody will know that you're the Lord. He does not give into that, nor does he just, like, make Satan disappear, right? He doesn't just obliterate Satan using his divine power. He endures this suffering. He allows some humiliation to happen by, like, having to, even having to respond to Satan is a humiliating thing if you are the Lord of the cosmos, as Jesus is. Now, so the other thing that I, that I want to, to tie this into is Jesus's experience here, his reaction to these motivations of sort of human concupiscence towards sin is successful. In, in, in other words, he resists these very natural temptations that, that sort of we all have, sins of the flesh, sins of the eyes or possessions, and sin, the sin of pride, you know, to want to really puff ourselves up and, you know, stick out our chest and, and demonstrate how great we are. In the history of Israel, uh, from the time of Adam and Eve on, you don't get anybody who really is able to stand up to all of these things in every circumstance. But the most dramatic uh, example of, of failure here is King Solomon, right? So in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, there's um, some uh, sort of obscure passage, um, chapter 17, uh, starts around verse 15, uh, verse 16, rather, that the king, these are, these are like rules for the king, right? Solomon is the king par excellence of the, uh, of the Israelites, is said that the king cannot multiply horses for himself um, or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. Verse 17, he shall also not multiply wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he greatly multiply for himself silver and gold. In uh, the first book of Kings, chapter 10 through 11, what you see is Solomon being described as someone who has 700 wives and 300 concubines. Um, so he has certainly multiplied wives uh, for himself. Um, and then you also uh, see... Solomon being described as someone who has horses and chariots that are just in obscene amounts. He had 1,400 chariots, 12,000 horsemen. And the reason that the king is not supposed to gather this super large army uh, is because one of the things that the Lord is trying to teach Israel throughout the Old Testament over and over and over again, and they, they struggle to get the message, is that he's the one that will provide the victory and the might that they need. It's not our own... Uh, resources that are going to get... It's not the, the Israelites' resources that will get them out of all of the trouble and difficulty that they are in, right? So it's the ultimate sin of pride for the king of the Israelites to imagine that what he needs to conquer and and spread the kingdom, right, and spread uh, the, the message of the covenant is an army, right? Because how did they survive, like, the, the exodus? Uh, actually, they didn't have an army. They fled from an army, and God intervened in a miraculous way to save them. So to build up your army 
demonstrates a certain pride on Solomon's behalf that like, he thinks he can put these things into place and then they will be secure when their security comes from God. Right? So he is, on the one hand, he has a, a 700 wives, 300 concubines, you know, like, like a thousand wives, right? A thousand is a number of perfection in the Bible. Bert, Simon, uh, Solomon has become, in a certain way, perfectly evil uh, through the sins of the flesh, right? And, and that leads to worshiping at pagan altars, having all these wives and these women around. He, ultimately, it leads him away from the Lord into idolatry. Um, so that's the sin of the flesh, the sin of pride with the army, building up all the horses. And also, kings are not supposed to store up large gold reserves. Solomon, uh, you know, is described here in, in 1 Kings chapter 10 and 11 as... There's just gold all over the place. And in fact, it says that he has 666 talents of gold. And this is the only place you see the number 666 in the Bible before it's used in the book of Revelation um, with reference to the Antichrist, okay? So there's there's a little bit of a clue here, right, for, for us people with, with a background in the New Testament that, ooh, Solomon is the only, the only other 666 is Solomon. Man, he's, he's almost like the Antichrist, right? And he had such great promise, right? It's like Anakin Skywalker. He was supposed to, you know, fix everything, not destroy it. Uh, but but Solomon, Solomon fails. So he gives in to the sin of the flesh with all the wives and the concubines. The sin of the eyes with possessions. He has all this gold, 666 talents of gold. And then the pride of this army that he builds up, as if that's what's going to finally set Israel free, Okay. So you have this in the background, if you know the Old Testament, if you know the story of Solomon, you, you have this in the background, and then Jesus experiences the same temptations that Adam and Eve experience, sin of the flesh, sin of the eyes, sin of pride, the same temptations that Solomon experienced, and of course Adam and Eve and Solomon, they, they gave in. They failed to stand up to these charges. But Jesus does resist. He resists the temptation of the flesh to eat, to turn a stone into bread. He resists the sin to possess the kingdoms of heaven, uh, of, of the earth, rather, without the cross, without suffering. And he resists the temptation to show everybody who he was, to show off, right? How does he do it? Well, he's God, right? So... We can't be expected to to do the same thing. Well, that's true. He is God, and, and you know, Jesus is uh, a little bit more able to withstand temptation, but he also shows us the way, right? Another Superman reference, right? They can be a good people, Kyle, if they wish to. They only lack the light to show them the way. Jesus does show us the way to resist these temptations that Adam and even Solomon and so many other people fail to stand up to, the sin of the flesh, sin of the eyes, and the sin of pride. And how does he do it? He does this in a very Lenten way in what's probably the most famous sermon ever preached, okay? The Sermon on the Mount. In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus prescribes to his disciples, three practices that can help to build your spiritual life. And I bet, I hope by now, you can guess what those three practices are. There's fasting, almsgiving, and prayer. How does this work? Well, fasting, voluntarily refraining from eating, or you could fast from other things too, but fasting from food is a really powerful thing because it's it puts us puts our will 
manifests in a way over the the natural desires of our body, even even those natural desires that are good. If we are able to manifest to maintain control, even for just a short window of 12 hours, 18, 24, whatever, over a good and natural desire, it makes it easier for us to maintain control over some of those desires of our flesh that might not be good, right? So fasting combats the body's desire and helps us to strengthen our will and to order our natural passions. So by prescribing fasting, as he does in, in the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 6 of Matthew's Gospel, let me pull up the passage here. No, that's John. All right, Matthew 6. So concerning fasting, verse 16. Matthew 6, verse 16. When you fast, do not look dismal like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have, they have their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by men, but by your Father who is in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus gives us the the, the prescription, right? Fast on purpose. Refrain from things, right? That's going to help you strengthen your will so that when you have a disordered passion, you're able to resist it. Okay, so fasting helps us to overcome the temptations of the flesh, of whatever kind. Okay, almsgiving, almsgiving fights our temptation to possess or to have things, and it, and it does this by doing the very opposite, by giving away of our material goods. Okay, um, Chiara Luce Badano, uh, who I named my my daughter, my seven year old after um, Saint uh, Blessed Chiara. Uh, there's a story about when she was a kid that her, her parents asked her to sort through her toys and find the things that she was a, wanted to give away. Uh, and her initial response was like, no, I don't want to give any of my toys away. Um, and her mother kind of chided her a little bit, explained to her like, there are people that have less, there are children that have nothing, and you, you know, you've been blessed with a lot of things, and we need to get rid of some of them, so let's give them to people who really need them. And she, she comes back later uh, and here's her daughter saying, keep, donate, keep, donate, keep, donate. And she's, she she goes to see what she's done, and she's created a, a donation pile that is all her finest toys, all of her best stuff, and the most worn-out, raggedy things that were broken or missing parts or, you know, ripped or whatever, that's what she was keeping. She got the message. Almsgiving helps us to counter the desire to just to, to have everything, to possess everything. We give away, we do the opposite, right? Like Costanza, we do the opposite, and that can strengthen our, our will. Almsgiving fights the possession to, temptate, to, to possess things by doing the opposite, giving them away. So fasting will help to combat the temptation of the flesh, sins of the flesh. Almsgiving helps to fight the sins or the temptations to possession, and prayer, prayer is the ultimate antidote to pride. And why is that? Well, unless you're spectacularly bad at praying, right? When we pray, we're putting ourselves in a position where we finally recognize and, and, and have to say, I am not in control. I'm not, I'm not God. To authentically pray is to recognize that there is the Lord who is so 
great, so much more powerful, so so far beyond us, and that we're we are in a very real sense nothing, right? This is why prayer will can help us to counteract pride. If you find yourself always putting yourself at the center of conversations or making everything about you and, and sort of just like constantly thinking about yourself, prayer is probably something you need more of. And I say that very much to myself as much as I may say it to anybody else. And when Jesus talks about prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, he says to pray like this. And the prayer is the Our Father, right? Just saying, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. If you mean those words is to humiliate yourself, to give yourself an adequate understanding of where you fit in, that you're you're not in control. Another simple prayer, right? Oh, my Jesus. Like, that takes tremendous humility to pray those words and mean them. So prayer is the, the antidote to the temptation of pride. So sum everything up here. In the garden, Adam and Eve experienced this, the sin of the flesh, the sins of, uh, or the temptation of the flesh, temptation to possess things, and the temptation of pride. They give in. Jesus resists these same temptations in his experience in the desert, and then he provides us with a prescription to get through these things, and it's fasting, almsgiving, and prayer, the three things that we try and do so much of during Lent that really help us to get more in touch with the spiritual life. And one final thing here, in religious life, you take vows that line up with these three prescriptions, right? That's why religious life is such an important way of seeking holiness. You take a vow of chastity, right? Your whole life is dedicated to resisting uh, certain sins of the flesh by, by that vow. You take a vow of poverty, which is a lifelong giving of alms, right? To, to avoid attachment to material goods. And you take a vow of obedience. And if you're going to live that vow of obedience, boy, is it going to help you to overcome pride and open up a life of humility in you, which is necessary for good prayer. So this is why we do these things during Lent. We, we fast, we give alms, and we pray, because ultimately it helps to fight the three most common sorts of temptations that we all experience, that Adam and Eve experienced in the garden, that Solomon experienced, that probably you and I have all experienced. And the solution is the, the, the good Lenten trio of fasting, prayer, and almsgiving. So I hope that that has been helpful to you to understand uh, more about why we do these things and also to see some of this this biblical uh, background for it. I, I taught this lesson once in a high school classroom, geez, almost 10 years ago probably, uh, or, or possibly more, uh, a long time ago anyways, taught this this sort of a lesson and this topic. And at the end of it, there were, there were two students that came up to me and they said, man, Mr. A, because that's what they called me, because I was cool, and no, I wasn't cool, but that's what they called me. And they said, man, Mr. A, this is like a spiritual jigsaw puzzle you just put together. So I don't know if it still seems like a spiritual jigsaw puzzle to you or not, but uh, hopefully you have a, a little bit better grap, uh, grip on why we do these things, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving during Lent. Um, I also want to invite, uh, once again, invite you to join us for our, our Lenten program from the St. Philip Institute, From the Beginning, God's Search for Man. 
It's a 47-day uh, scripture reading plan with some reflections uh, that, that I've written, uh, and then we also have video commentaries on the Sunday Gospels for Lent, uh, and you can sign up at the stphilipinstitute.org website. It's right on the front page. Uh, follow us on Facebook if you haven't already. Follow us on YouTube, Spotify, wherever you can follow us. Uh, please, please do so. And I hope you have a, a good day and a, and a good beginning to this Lenten season. God bless you in this time, and please pray for us at the Institute. Thanks.